Hello. Hey, is that Johnny? Yeah, hi. Hey, this Johnny. John. It's John Watts. How are you? <laughs> cool. Hey, I'm doing good. Uh, is this still a good time to chat? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thanks for making a little time for me. Um, yeah, I am uh, calling because we're doing an episode on James Naylor uh, on on cool. our on our upcoming podcast. And um, and a, a little while ago, you saw our logo on our our uh, Facebook page, and you commented that James Naylor is a bad. <laughs> All right. I couldn't remember exactly what I said, um, but uh, I figured it was something along those lines because so, I, I uh, used words like that. So, <laughs> uh, so I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that. Why Why is James Naylor a bad? Sure. I'm from a, a Mormon LDS background. I live in Utah. Um. And at some point, uh, Quakers became relevant to to my personal spiritual journey. Uh, I transitioned out of the LDS Church after having a lot of problems with you know, spirituality, culture, uh, literally everything about it. Um, uh, and I became attracted to a lot of the early things about Quakerism that had to deal with like social critique. Uh, about about wealth, about churches, about authority, about how people can abuse these powers um, on people's journey to like genuinely connect with with something inside themselves and the divine. And um, James Naylor is a part of that tradition, and uh, with a lot of people. But I I think it's really cool, and I think there's something that speaks to me. And I think there's something badass, uh, if I have to say it that way, about um, about speaking truth to power, about critiquing critiquing social norms, critiquing religious norms, critiquing wealth. And I know he he had a lot to do with that. And, and I would call him a bad for for what I see as being like a courageous individual standing up for these kind of ideas that that resonate with me, but being like a a an early person to do it in history. The 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 the, the Quaker podcast. Story, spirit, sound. I'm John Watts, and I'm Georgia Sparling. And today we're talking about what is possibly one of the most difficult stories in the entirety of Quaker history. Which is just a great thing to tackle in our first season, right? Uh, yeah, you know, we're going for it. Why not? Why not? Um, <laughs> so this story came to my attention when I was just starting to study early Quakers back when I was a student at Guilford College. And as a singer-songwriter, I was always on the lookout for dramatic stories. And this one is just about as dramatic as they come. <laughs> it definitely is. When I first heard about it, I remember thinking that it was, you know, maybe one of the most heretical things that a person could do. <laughs> I mean, you you aren't the only one. So in 1656, James Naylor, who was a prominent early Quaker leader, 
rode a horse into the city of Bristol with his followers all around him. They were singing Hosanna and throwing garments in his path in a reenactment of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Naylor was arrested and Parliament convicted him of blasphemy. He was whipped through the streets and thrown into prison. It was a famous incident worldwide at the time, and it changed Quakerism forever. Uh, Yeah, that sounds like quite the scandal, and it brings up all sorts of questions. Yeah, I I can imagine. So, uh, but give me some examples. Like, like what? Um, Why did he do this? Um, Mm -hmm. What did he think was going to happen? Like, what was going to be the result of this action? Did he think that he was, you know, Christ coming back? What did other Quakers think about it? Where was George Fox during all this? And you said that it changed Quakerism forever. Like, but how exactly? So all all fair questions, I would say, and and all questions that I am terribly unqualified to answer. So today we've assembled an all-star team of Quaker historians and storytellers to try to tackle some of these questions. So buckle up. Okay. Um, but I do have one more question. Are we going to hear your James Naylor song? Oh, yeah. Gr- uh, great question. So, yes, I did write a song about this incident. I'll sprinkle some snippets of that song throughout the episode, and you can hear the whole song at our website. Without further ado, let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's go. James Naylor hadn't slept for days. He had a letter in his pocket. From George and Margaret fell they prayed that he would James Naylor is a curious figure in Quaker history, kind of an enigma to historians trying to kind of understand him and his motivations. That's Carol Spencer. She's an author and retired professor at Earlham School of Religion, a Quaker seminary in Richmond, Indiana. He was one of the earliest uh, leaders in the Quaker movement, contemporary with George Fox. He was born in 1618. He was a little older than Fox. Uh, He was from Yorkshire, England. He was a farmer. He's usually referred to as a yeoman, which means he was kind of middle class, uh, not a peasant, not gentry. But when the English Civil War broke out in uh, 1642, Naylor joined the Parliamentary Army and fought in the Parliamentary Army through the rest of the 1640s up until 1651 when he returned to the farm. That's our second guest today, Stuart Masters. Stuart is an author and historian and the current program coordinator for history and theology at the Woodbrook Quaker Study Center. Uh, During his time in the army, he uh, achieved uh, a senior position as a a quartermaster uh, and also was recognised as a charismatic preacher and spiritual guide. When he returned to the farm in 1651, I guess he thought he was returning to normal life. But within a very short period of time, uh, in 1652, he uh, experienced a divine call to ministry Um, and joined the earliest Quaker movement uh, as it was beginning to really grow in the north of England at that time. He just just went out the front gate and kept going. 
<laughs> Our third guest today, Doug Gwynn, is a scholar of Quaker theology, a historian, and he's an author of many Quaker books, including The Covenant Crucified, which has Naylor on the cover. He was already known as a great preacher, somebody who had heard him preach among the ranks uh, of this very radical army, said that that he had experienced more fear hearing James Naylor preach than he did in battle. <laughs> so it uh, must, must have been quite a phenomenon. I was at the plow meditating on the things of God, and suddenly I heard a voice saying unto me, Get thee out from thy kindred and from thy father's house. And I had a promise given in with it. Wherefore I did exceedingly rejoice that I had heard the voice of that God which I had professed from a child, but had never known him. And rounding out our crack team of historians today that we've recruited to help us tell this story, my old professor from Guilford, the one who originally told me the Naylor story, Max Carter. He's here reading Naylor's account of his calling to become a Quaker. He hears this message clearly as a directive that God is telling him, leave your wife, leave your family, leave your profession, and he goes and joins the Quakers, becomes an associate of George Fox, and becomes known as probably the most eloquent speaker, pretty eloquent himself. He's also seen as the best epistle writer, the best uh, tract writer, the best theologian of the early generation of Quakers. Uh, He wrote tract after tract after tract interpreting the Quaker message, defending it theologically. And he was very effective at that. People were quite taken with his eloquence, his articulation, his his theology, his sincerity, and was seen as the equal, if not the superior, to George Fox. People read the signs of the English Civil War and all of the conflict with it to to kind of think that they were entering into the end times. So one of the things that's motivating early friends is what they feel is they're experiencing the return of Christ, not in a physical way, which is how most other churches expected, but the return of Christ in spirit within them. And so they're very strongly prophetic If you are in this new life and Christ is living in you, everything you say and everything that you do is not your creaturely self saying and doing those things. It's Christ doing those things through you. And in those earlier years, Quakers are very much on the offensive. They're saying to the established church and to the powers that be, your days are numbered Because Christ is returning to rule himself, to teach his people himself. And you are the old ways that are dying. We are part of the new ways that are coming. And so it's a very challenging message to those in power, particularly given that early Quakers are not, generally speaking, members of the gentry. They're, They're generally speaking, ordinary people. And women in particular are having a strongly visible and embodied presence within the early movement as assertive preachers in their own right. And it's quite hard to uh, overestimate 
the extent to which that was seen as deeply outrageous and transgressive of gender norms at the time. He was very articulate. We don't know his education, but he also had um, a gift and skill to debate some of the more educated theologians of the time. And that gave him um, a lot of ability to kind of become a leader within the Quaker movement. He was actually better at debating than George Fox, they say. I think they said like one-fifth of all of the Quaker writings at that time. And there were a lot of Quaker writings, a lot of pamphlets, all these pamphlet wars. And he was very good at writing those. His writings are all still alive on the internet now. You can get the whole, all, every everything he wrote. And he wrote a lot. <laughs> Uh, and even though the language is, you know, very 17th century, very long sentences, uh, very theological doctrinal disputes, um, that he had a literary quality to his writings more so than many of the Quakers. And so people still read him, which is wonderful. Well, it started when James went to London. He had so much success there. He preached and worked, converting hundreds. No one questioned his welfare. In the earliest parts of the 1650s, he's really ranging across the north of England uh, and a fa fairly free, free work across that whole area. But in 1655, he's asked to go to London, which, of course, is the centre of power and uh, very much a hotbed of uh, radical religious and political ideas. And he joins Francis Howgill uh, and Edward Burrow as the leading Quakers in London at that time. And this really seems to be both the making and the undoing of James Naylor. It's the making of him in the sense that his skills and his gifts uh, bear fruit. He's very successful. He becomes highly influential. He's moving in all sorts of circles in London, from ordinary people right up to radical elements within those who are in power. And he's really uh, achieving a lot in terms of gathering people into the movement and being recognised for the leader that he is. So he started to gain followers. And I think this began kind of a rivalry between he and Fox that tended to uh, kind of grow until a rift occurred. Some people saw Naylor as kind of the chief Quaker at the time. So, you know, it was really hard to know who actually was the leader. And there was some power struggles between Fox and maybe some other leaders as well, but particularly be between Fox and Naylor because Naylor was so popular. Uh, he had a lot of women admirers too, which may have been played a part in, in what happened later as well. Now, this is where it gets dicey. This is where it gets really tricky. And this is, again, where various historians have tried to sort all this out. But it seems pretty clear that George Fox was somewhat jealous or a little concerned about this rival to his authority and his leadership. Uh, and Naylor adores George Fox. And in one very, very poignant experience, they're both in prison together. And James Naylor is aware of Fox's feelings about him. And Naylor tries to uh, make good, offers him an apple, <laughs> and Fox refuses it, offers to kiss his hand, 
Fox offers his foot. It's uh, not the best scene in Quakerism. <laughs> Doesn't put George Fox in great light. Okay, so we've got two charismatic leaders at odds with one another in a burgeoning revolutionary religious movement that claims Christ has returned inwardly for those willing to listen. And they're both in prison after having a very public falling out. What could possibly go wrong? After the break, what went wrong? Plus, we take a crack at why and explore the fallout, which continues to this day. Whenever someone donates to the Quaker Project, there's a little form to fill out. Nothing too elaborate, but on it we ask a simple question. Why are you supporting this project? There's no pressure, it's an optional question, but it helps us better understand the people who choose to partner with us in this work. Recently, Matthew Broughton became a donor, and he told us that the podcast has helped him to become a Quaker. A simple statement to a simple question, but there's always more to the story. So we asked him to share some more about his journey to Quakerism and how the podcast helped him with that. The first time I heard about Quakers was probably about 30 years ago, while I was backpacking throughout England. So it's taken me a while to finally get around to finding out more about Quakers. But unfortunately, I also got caught up in a cult for about 10 years, which I managed to get out of. <laughs> you would think from that experience that I would be cured from ever wanting to get involved with or looking to different religions again <laughs> but I always knew that there was something much deeper inside that we could access through stillness and meditation one of my many vices is my addiction to uh, podcasts I thought I wonder if there's some really good Quaker podcast out there and then I discovered the Quaker um, it inspired me to go and attend a Quaker meeting in Melbourne. And even though I do enjoy being a solitary Quaker, <laughs> there is something really special and important about sitting in silence with others. So thanks to Georgia and John and the team that make the podcast, you've helped break the isolation from other Quakers while being on the other side of the world. <laughs> It's my job to tell stories that connect people with Quakerism, but it's always freshly surprising to me to hear stories like Matthew's, stories of seeking connection and finding others who share that same spiritual yearning. It's a pretty cool thing to be a part of, and it's really because of our donors that these stories are possible at all. Every monthly donation we receive puts us one step closer to sustainability and longevity of this great project that we've embarked upon. Would you consider partnering with us for $10 or $20 or more a month? You can find out how at thequaker.org. Thanks so much. Okay, so when we left the story, James Naylor is in a prison in Exeter. He has just had a public falling out with George Fox, who offered to let James kiss his foot. 
and he's surrounded by a group of followers who are feeling alienated by Fox for trying to play nice with the British government. And so that group begins to resent George Fox and other leadership from the North and the kind of more organized movement that, that they're starting to forge. Just a reminder, that's Quaker historian and author Doug Gwynn. After an imprisonment in the South, Naylor gets free again in, in the summer of 1656 and begins with this small group of admirers traveling around the southwest of England, performing this sign that something like Jesus entering Jerusalem uh, with Naylor in the role of Jesus riding a horse and his, his followers singing, holy, holy, holy and performing this this sign this was a fairly ragtag and uh, and disheveled group of um, of people who were soaked to the skin trudging through mud in the rain uh, but reenacting this story from the gospels which is essentially palm sunday that's stuart masters uh, james naylor is on a horse um he's he's riding into the city uh in the mud and the rain his followers are gathered around him, uh, throwing coats in front of him, singing Hosanna, which is what the uh, supporters of Jesus did when he entered into the city. And of course, in Jesus' time, that way of entering the city was the way a king or emperor would enter a major city. They didn't get very far. That's Carol Spencer. They were immediately arrested, partly because there were a lot of opponents of Quakerism in Bristol, and they saw this as a really good opportunity to bring disrepute upon the Quakers. So they're going to throw them into jail for doing this. Parliament was not amused. <laughs> the church was not amused. That's Max Carter. He is hauled in front of Parliament in Westminster Hall, and he is found guilty of heresy and blasphemy. Parliament spent more time with trying Naylor than any other item of business in 1656, the closing months of 1656. They clearly saw this as an opportunity to discredit the Quaker movement and begin to turn the tide of uh, a phenomenon that is growing exponentially at, the, at this time, north and south. Imitating Christ in that way was considered blasphemy, which was a capital offense. So he could very well have been executed for doing that. I think even when he set out to do it, he may have thought that for sure he would have been. And, you know, he would have died as a martyr, kind of as Jesus did. So uh, they savagely punished him with a, a bee branded in his forehead tongue bored through with an owl, a hot owl, and many, many floggings uh, in both the streets of London and the streets of Bristol, which he barely survived. He was thrown into Bridewell Prison, where he stayed until late 1659. They indicted him, his punishment, 300 and lashes, a red-hot iron through James's tongue, And so 
we could get into some of the interpretations of <laughs> why he did this. Originally, I think the first interpretation was that it was all Martha Simmons' fault. It was all the woman's fault, right? <laughs> that somehow she had bewitched him uh, in a weak moment and encouraged him to do this thing. Uh, most historians today don't see it as uh, that's what happened, but um, that's one of the interpretations is why he did this. Yeah, blame, blame it on the women. But I do think what he was trying to symbolize in his writing to Bristol, his theology was the incarnation that Christ, you know, the incarnation of Christ and the fact that um, that incarnation can even be within us, that Christ can be revealed in us. And I think he was symbolically trying to portray that. Um, he probably did a little too literally with you know, for it to really be understood. In the trial itself, um, Naylor does make clear that uh, he abhors the idea that he might be uh, seen to be claiming to be God. Um, and he also uh, makes it clear that he felt that it was a sign that was uh, put upon him by God to com to kind of communicate something uh, to, to the world. And of course, Quaker signs and Quaker preaching were all about... Um, shaking people out of their uh, out of their um, complacency provoking a spiritual crisis uh, enabling people to see the truth you know because early friends have experienced something that they want everybody else to experience and they can't quite understand why everybody else is not getting it and so the preaching and the signs are often about provoking a response um, and so Nail is very clear that it's a sign but he does absolutely deny the idea that he he is a creature is God even though, of course, all Quakers would say, but God is within us in spirit. Naylor knew that he was not Jesus Christ returned, but a sign of Christ returned in the flesh of common people like himself, a yeoman farmer from Yorkshire, which would be considered a real hick to the Southerners. But some of his admirers were not so clear about that difference, I think because they really had stars in their eyes when they were around Naylor. I think he was a very holy person. I don't think he was a madman. I think he um, actually did hear God call him, and he was compelled to do that and was willing to suffer the consequences. So I guess for Quakers today, it's his courage and is willing to do what God told him to do, even though uh, it didn't quite work out as he might have hoped. So the news of Naylor's ride into Bristol, fueled largely by the attention from Parliament's indictment, travels around the world. In the late 1650s, if you only know one thing about Quakers, it's probably this. So what impact did that have on the burgeoning Quaker movement? Well, Fox sees this as a real threat. We got to you know, put some third rails on this. We got to put some boundary markers on this. And that's when you begin to see the process of this spirit-led movement of uh, Quakers into a denomination, into an organization with monthly meetings, yearly meetings, ministers, elders, overseers. It did bring a lot of scandal to the Quaker movement. And I think what um, one of the Things that happened in the aftermath was that Quakers 
um, kind of became better organized. They kind of tightened up their uh, organization and they became a little more of an institution. Official state persecution against against Quakers became much worse after the Naylor incident and lots of mob violence against Quakers, uh, particularly around London and elsewhere. So Fox, who had been quietly uh, negotiating with the government for toleration, uh, Naylor's incident just blew that clear out of the water. Uh, George Fox said that that Naylor had run out into his imaginations or something like that. So discernment was to prevent this running out that could happen. Um, and it's thought that they kind of tightened up their theology too, so that they became, they started to institutionalize. They weren't this as radical as they had been prior to this event. So, I mean, the punishment that Naylor experiences is so severe that it does nearly kill him. Um, and he's very ill for quite a period of time uh, after that. Actually, his, uh, his wife, Anne, does travel from Yorkshire to, um, to London to nurse him for a period of time while he's in Bridewell, which is the prison he was kept in, uh, in London. Uh, but he continues to write, and he writes some really important things during the time in prison, including the famous tract, The Lamb's War, which uh, the Quaker historian Hugh Barber argues is the first systematic explanation of Quaker peaceable principles. So he hasn't lost the gift. Naylor is released in, uh, in 1659, shortly before the fall of the Commonwealth and the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. And he returns to preaching in London, and it is said he uh, continues to be successful. Uh, he continues to influence people, he continues to use his gifts. But of course his notoriety at this time it's hard to underestimate what a notorious character he is because the story of his, um, of his fall, in a sense, is, uh, is, is developed. It's a bit like Chinese whispers. It changes as it gets spread around and it actually gets spread all across the trade routes, all across the known world at the time. But at some point in 1660, uh, he begins to walk back to Yorkshire to visit his family and uh, on his way back, somewhere in Huntingtonshire, he was uh, attacked by somebody. Maybe it was just common thieves. He was beaten and left for dead. He was found and uh, brought to a home of a local Quaker where he died a few, few days later. Whether it was a random act of violence, robbery, or whether a guy with a bee on his forehead, branded on his forehead, was uh, an easy mark, I don't know. But uh, Naylor was a beautiful spirit and one of the great leaders of the movement. So that was October of 1660 that he, that he died. Uh, there is a famous deathbed confession. Uh, do you want me to talk a bit about that? <laughs> uh, one of the other reasons that Naylor is kind of well known was because he wrote he wrote quite a bit after the Bristol incident, and sometimes these are these are called his confessions, Naylor's confessions. These writings, I call them the post Bristol writings, are 
they're really kind of literary masterpieces. Some of them are very beautiful. Um, and particularly the piece that's called his kind of deathbed, his last words as he was dying. There's a spirit which I feel that delights to do no evil, nor to revenge any wrong, but delights to endure all things in hope to enjoy its own in the end. Its hope is to outlive all wrath and contention and to weary out all exultation and cruelty or whatever is of a nature contrary to itself. It sees to the end of all temptations as it bears no evil in itself, so it conceives none in thoughts to any other. If it be betrayed, it bears it, for its ground and spring is the mercies and forgiveness of God. Its crown is meekness, its life is everlasting love, unfeigned. And takes its kingdom with entreaty and not with contention, and keeps it by lowliness of mind. In God alone can it rejoice, though none else regard it, or can own its life. It's conceived in sorrow, and brought forth without any to pity it. Nor doth it murmur at grief and oppression. It never rejoiceth except through sufferings, for with the world's joy it is murdered. I found it alone being forsaken. I have fellowship therein with them who lived in dens and desolate places in the earth, who through death, through death, through death, through death, obtained this resurrection and eternal holy life. Thank you to Max Carter, Doug Gwynn, Stuart Masters, Carol Spencer, and Johnny Dean Warren for their time and Naylor knowledge. Learn more about their work on our episode page, where you can also find a transcript of this episode, discussion questions, and a place to leave a comment. This episode was produced and edited by John Watts and me, Georgia Sparling. John also composes the music for each episode. Before you go, I want to let you know that we're only a few episodes away from the end of our first season, and we have a little something special to send to our monthly donors. So if you've been considering joining up, this would be a great time to do it. Again, head over to thequaker.org to learn how you can join our giving team. Okay, we will be back next week with an all-new episode.